Now, friends, as a family of faith, we are committed to, uh, to lifting one another up in prayer, especially during difficult seasons. Thanks, Garrett. So I'd like to ask that you would just be in prayer for me and my family. Um, you know that um, Cassie and I grew up in central and northern California, and though it comes up in my annual reviews every year, we are fans of the San Francisco Giants. But next door at St. Hedwig Baseball, our son Moses has been drafted, and I am the assistant coach. Gosh, this is not working. Come on, guys. That was such a perfect setup. There it is. Yep, it's really rough. But I know some of you are going to have a lot of fun with this. The head coach is a buddy of mine. He is a big Dodger fan. And before I even knew what team Moses would be, had been drafted on, my, the head coach texted me as his assistant coach, and he said, hey, you don't need to wear the uniform. I'm not going to make you do it. But as they say, suffering leads to sanctification. And now that I've got that hat, I have a new plan, a new way of getting out of Dodger Stadium in just one piece. So, hey... This morning, we begin a brand new series that we are calling, I Give Up. I Give Up. A series title like that goes against the grain of our committed, can-do culture. We're the people who take the bull by the horns, who get things done, who make things happen. But for the next six weeks, I want to invite us to see how calling it quits Throwing in the towel, waving the white flag is central to a life lived in God. I want us to see how important it is for Christians to quit. Now, this series is informed and inspired by the season of Lent. As we saw together on Ash Wednesday, Lent recalls Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, where he was tested and tried and tempted by the evil one before returning to announce the good news that the kingdom of God is now at hand. And so we too, in the season of Lent, we too enter a 40-day season to be prepared by God that we might celebrate the good news of Easter. And this 40-day season for us this year includes waving that white flag. This morning, I want to invite us to quit comparing. I want to invite us to quit comparing. To quit comparing ourselves to some unattainable standard. To quit comparing ourselves to who we thought we would be or how far we thought we would go. To quit comparing ourselves to those who are around us. Theodore Roosevelt once put it this way. He said, comparison is the thief of joy. Think about that. Comparison is the thief of joy. But it is so common, we are constantly comparing David Foster Wallace once told the parable of two young fish who were swimming along one day when they happened to pass by an older, wiser fish swimming in the other direction. This older, wiser fish nods to the young fish and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? The two young fish swim on for a bit, and then they turn to each other and they ask, What in the world is water? It plays on the metaphor of fish. They don't have a word for water because they've never known anything different. Wallace explained it this way. He said, the most obvious 
the most important realities of our lives are often the hardest ones to see and to talk about. And if they are hardest to see and to talk about, they're also the hardest to quit. And friends, that is true of comparison. It's central to all the stories that we tell. Think about it. There's the evil queen and her magic mirror. She asks, who is the fairest of them all? Until one day when she doesn't appreciate the answer. There's Cinderella's stepsisters, Anastasia and Drusilla. They demean and they degrade and they dehumanize. They are cold and cruel and calculated. Why? Because they compare themselves with Cinderella. But it's not just fairy tales. Think of Chariots of Fire. Whenever we think of that movie, we think of that one line, right? When I run, I feel God's pleasure. But don't forget the concern of one of the other characters who says, if I can't win, I won't run. Think about it. There's this calculated comparison before the race is even run. More recently, there's a television show called Everybody Loves Raymond. It's a sitcom whose title is uttered by the taller, older brother, Robert. He says, well, Ma always liked you best. Everybody loves Raymond. Notice, it's not enough for Robert to be part of a family. It's not enough to be loved in that family and by their mother. No, he has to ask whether his mother loves his brother more. Comparison is common, especially between siblings, not only in our stories, not only for Robert and Raymond, for Cinderella and Drusilla, they're common in the scriptures as well. Think about it. Think about Joseph and the concern of his brothers who have contempt for his coat. There's the story Jesus tells about two other brothers, one of whom goes and lives it up in Las Vegas, but comes home to criticism by the one who stayed behind. Scriptures tell us how wonderful it is when brothers live together in harmony. But we know how rarely that happens, don't we? Why? Comparison. That's why H.L. Mencken once said, contentment is making $10 more a month than your brother-in-law. <laughs> now, in a way, these later stories echo the earliest story with Cain and with Abel. Their parents compare fruit, but Cain and Abel compare offerings. Hear what God's word tells us in Genesis chapter 4. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Already, can you sense the tension that's rising? They are offering different things. The Lord looked on favor on Abel in, in his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry, his face was downcast, and Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And when they're in the field... Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, you are. Now we know the story because of the killing, but notice the cause of the killing was the comparison. And I don't think it's too dramatic to say that every time we compare, I a little death. 
Comparison still kills. Like Cain and Abel, our comparisons often occur with someone with whom we are close. It's prompted by proximity, right? Think about it. Um, Small business owners may emulate Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, right? Small business owners might emulate Jeff Bezos, but they would never compare themselves to him. High school athletes may look up to Olympians, but would never compare themselves to them. But our friends and our family, our neighbors and all of their stuff, it's right there, right in front of our eyes. Why? Because comparison is prompted by proximity. Our connectedness on social media exacerbates the problem, doesn't it? Think about all the possibilities for comparison. We can compare our careers. We can compare our kids. We can compare our kitchens. There are so many ways to feel inferior or to feel superior. Barnyards aren't the only places with pecking orders, are they? And you don't have to believe the Bible to see the truth of the Bible. Just look at Everybody Loves Raymond. Everybody loves Raymond except his brother, who stands a foot taller but lives in Ray's shadow. Look at Harold Abrams, unwilling to run unless he knows he'll win. Look at Cinderella's sisters. How many people do you know have named their daughters Drusilla? (laughs) See, we're seeing the truth of what the Bible teaches us about comparison, even though we might not think about the Bible teaching us about comparison. All of the sins of the flesh have their roots in comparison one way or the other. Think about it. Lust causes us to objectify another's body. Greed causes us to desire their possessions. Envy prompts us to want what they've become, but they all start with comparison. And when we compare, like Cain and Abel, when we compare, we play the if-only game. Has anybody ever played the if-only game before? If only I had that job. And then you get that job and you play the game again. Well, if only I got that promotion. Then you get the promotion. And then you play the game again. You say, well, if only the promotion came with that corner office. Then you get that corner office and you say, well, if only that corner office came with a doubling of my salary. If only. If only I got a date with him or I was married to her. If only I lived there or I drove that. If only. If only. It's a game of comparison. See, comparison is that sideways glance at another person who is ever so slightly better than us or perhaps worse than us in the most minuscule of ways. We don't compare ourselves to those living in the Hollywood Hills, but instead to those living right next door where we can easily see their manicured lawn, their smiley happy kids with their A-plus report cards, their bright and shiny new car, that brand new Tesla, or over there is a Corvette, and then across the street they got a Tesla, and then they got another Tesla, but enough about me and my neighborhood. (laughs) Perhaps for some of us, it goes the other way. Maybe we stand a little taller because we got our neighbors beat. In his second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, We dare not classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. 
when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. What's the problem? We go all the way back to Genesis 4, but it still holds true. Comparison still kills. And in comparison, we're often bringing about a little death in our own soul. Comparison still kills, one little thought at a time. And here's what's worse. Comparison isn't only about what it does to us. It's worse than that. You see, comparison questions our creator. Think about it. When we compare ourselves with some unattainable standard, when we compare ourselves with who we thought we'd be or what we thought we'd accomplish, when we compare ourselves with those right next to us, we question how God created us. We question the ways that God has gifted us. We question where God has called us. You see, comparison questions our creator. And the ways that he has created us, the way that he has gifted us, the places that he has called us. That sideways glance takes our eyes off of God and puts it on someone else, doesn't it? Remember that story uh, that Jesus tells that Anna read for us a few moments ago? Those day laborers didn't have a problem with the man who'd hired them, a man who had prestige and power. They had a problem of proximity. Their problem was with the people who had worked a couple hours less and got paid the same amount. Their problem are those on their right and their left. Their problem was with those who didn't have to work as long, who got off easy. And our translations usually smooth it out a little bit, but in the Greek, what the landowner says is, is your eye evil because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am good? It's all about that sideways glance at the other people who were working in the field. They have taken their eyes off of the landowner who is good and taken their eyes and their focus upon the people next to them. Is your eye evil because I am good? Do you look at me with judgment because I am generous? Remember why Jesus tells the story? He tells the story to help us understand what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is all about a landowner who is good and who is generous and and who gives where we don't deserve. The film Amadeus is set in 18th century Vienna. It tells the story of Antonio Salieri and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Salieri prays before a crucifix for musical success. He promises God for a lifelong chastity and devotion, and God answers his prayer. But one day, he meets Mozart, who is even more gifted, who is even more talented, and he has not promised God his lifelong chastity and devotion, (laughs) despite his name, Amadeus, which means loved by God. And we see the most incredibly poignant example of when comparison kills and when comparison questions our creator. Because in the film, Salieri takes down the crucifix. That same crucifix before which he had prayed for the talent of composing, and he puts that crucifix in the fire. And he vows to destroy God's incarnation in Mozart. If you've seen it, you know how dramatic that scene is. 
how so clearly it communicates how comparison kills and causes us to question our creator. Comparison still kills. It still causes us to question our creator. And every time we compare, we are stuck again in that barnyard. We are stuck again, still swimming in that water. And friends, there is only one way to call it quits. There's only one way to throw in the towel, only one way to wave the white flag and to give up comparison, and it's right here at this table. The only way to quit comparing is to see, to know, and then to truly believe that Jesus came to swim in our water. That Jesus came from the heights of heaven to the lowest part of the pecking order. So we would no longer measure ourselves by ourselves. Where Cain and Abel brought different offerings, Jesus brought the ultimate offering. Jesus didn't sacrifice fruits from the soil or the firstborn from the flock. Jesus offered himself. Anytime you think someone is better than you or worse than you, remember this Jesus who willingly went lower than you. Anytime we're tempted to compare, remember what Paul tells us, that Jesus, despite being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but instead he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul tells us all that, remember, not because he wants us to know theologically the theological truth of what Jesus has done, leaving the heights of heaven to come down to the lowest part of our pecking order. He tells us all that because he wants us to do the same. Before he recites that great hymn, he says, let your attitude be in the same mind as that of Christ. See, Jesus went through all that. Jesus is convinced that you were worth it. And perhaps it's only in tasting and seeing that the Lord is good that we can continue to think about that and, and to believe that that's true. That Jesus went through all that, convinced that we were worth it. So that we too can give up comparing. We too can rest in the good news of a God whose love encompasses everyone. Those who showed up at the crack of dawn and worked all day in the blistering sun. And those who showed up an hour before it was time to quit. May we all quit comparing. God, we give you thanks for this table, for the good news that it reminds us of. The good news that Jesus came from the heights of heaven for us, that we might be welcomed into that field by you, the landowner that you might meet us here at this table, that we might taste and see that you are good, that we might trust that your goodness has created us and called us and gifted us to a particular place, a particular time for a particular reason. God, would you help us? Would you give us the courage to quit comparing? And instead, to trust in this Jesus. Trusting that at the foot of the cross, it is level ground. 
that we all come as sinners in need of a Savior. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. And so it's at this table that we remember the night that Jesus was betrayed and then he was arrested. And he looked around at that table of those who had been following him for three years, day in and day out. And there was no org chart, no hierarchy. Jesus looked at all of them and he picked up the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. As often as you eat of this, do so in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and pouring it out, said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of this, do so in remembrance of me. So for 2,000 years, God's people have been gathering around tables like this with the ordinary elements of bread and the cup to remember that night that we are all on a level playing field before Jesus. It is level at the foot of the cross. And to know that we need this bread and this cup to be reminded that we are sinners in need of a Savior, but that that Savior has come. This morning you'll be excused in a few, few moments to come forward, and there are four different stations at which our servers will be there to serve you. There's bread and a cup that you will be able to pick up from the tray. There is gluten-free bread available here on the table. And then there are these little packets. If you'd prefer one of those, feel free to grab one off the table. I want to invite our servers to come forward now. And as they come, I'd like to invite us to spend a moment just pausing and reflecting upon our need for Jesus this day. Our need to remember that he is good, that he has created us and called us and gifted us, that we can trust that that grace that welcomes us here. Please come as the ushers uh, instruct in just a moment.